Section 26 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1F, Section 26, Chapter 67, Part 5. The standing army and the king's guards were by the commons voted to be illegal, a new pretension, it must be confessed, but necessary for the full security of liberty and a limited constitution. Arbitrary imprisonment is a grievance which, in some degree, has place almost in every government, except in that of Great Britain, and our absolute security from it we owe chiefly to the present Parliament, a merit which makes some atonement for the faction and violence into which their prejudices had, in other particulars, betrayed them. The Great Charter had laid the foundation of this valuable part of liberty. The petition of right had renewed and extended it, but some provisions were still wanting to render it complete and prevent all evasion or delay from ministers and judges. The act of habeas corpus, which passed this session, served these purposes. By this act it was prohibited to send any one to a prison beyond sea. No judge, under severe penalties, must refuse to any prisoner a writ of habeas corpus, by which the jailer was directed to produce in court the body of the prisoner whence the writ has its name, and to certify the cause of his detainer and imprisonment. If the jail lie within twenty miles of the judge, the writ must be obeyed in three days, and so proportionably for greater distances. Every prisoner must be indicted the first term after his commitment, and brought to trial in the subsequent term, and no man, after being enlarged by order of court, can be recommitted for the same offence. This law seems necessary for the protection of liberty in a mixed monarchy, and as it has not place in any other form of government, this consideration alone may induce us to prefer our present constitution to all others. It must, however, be confessed that there is some difficulty to reconcile with such extreme liberty the full security and the regular police of a state, especially the police of great cities. It may also be doubted whether the low state of the public revenue in this period, and of the military power, did not still render some discretionary authority in the crown necessary to the support of government. During these zealous efforts for the protection of liberty, no complacence for the crown was discovered by this Parliament. The king's revenue lay under great debts and anticipations. Those branches granted in the years 1669 and 1670 were ready to expire, and the fleet was represented by the king as in great decay and disorder. But the commons, instead of being affected by these distresses of the crown, trusted chiefly to them for passing the exclusion bill, and for punishing and displacing all the ministers who were obnoxious to them. They were, therefore, in no haste to relieve the king and grew only the more assuming on account of his complaints and uneasiness. Jealous, however, of the army, 
they granted the sum of two hundred and six thousand pounds which had been voted for disbanding it by the last parliament though the vote by reason of the subsequent prorogation and dissolution joined to some scruples of the lords had not been carried into an act this money was appropriated by very strict clauses but the commons insisted not as formerly upon its being paid into the chamber of london the impeachment of the five popish lords in the tower with that of the earl of danby was carried on with vigor the power of this minister and his credit with the king rendered him extremely obnoxious to the popular leaders and the commons hoped that if he were pushed to extremity he would be obliged in order to justify his own conduct to lay open the whole intrigue of the french alliance which they suspected to contain a secret of the most dangerous nature the king on his part apprehensive of the same consequences and desirous to protect his minister who was become criminal merely by obeying orders employed his whole interest to support the validity of that pardon which had been granted him the lords appointed a day for the examination of the question and agreed to hear counsel on both sides but the commons would not submit their pretensions to the discussion of argument and inquiry they voted that whosoever should presume without their leave to maintain before the house of peers the validity of danby's pardon should be accounted a betrayer of the liberties of the english commons and they made a demand that the bishops whom they knew to be devoted to the court should be removed not only when the trial of the earl should commence but also when the validity of his pardon should be discussed the bishops before the reformation had always enjoyed a seat in parliament but so far were they anciently from regarding that dignity as a privilege that they affected rather to form a separate order in the state independent of the civil magistrate and accountable only to the pope and to their own order by the constitutions however of clarendon enacted during the reign of henry the second they were obliged to give their presence in parliament but as the canon law prohibited them from assisting in capital trials they were allowed in such cases the privilege of absenting themselves a practice which was at first voluntary became afterwards a rule and on the earl of stratford's trial the bishops who would gladly have attended and who were no longer bound by the canon law were yet obliged to withdraw it had been usual for them to enter a protest asserting their right to sit and this protest being considered as a mere form was always admitted and disregarded but here was started a new question of no small importance the commons who were now enabled by the violence of the people and the necessities of the crown to make new acquisitions of powers and privileges insisted that the bishops had no more title to vote in the question of the earl's pardon than in the impeachment itself the bishops asserted that the pardon was merely a preliminary and that neither by the canon law nor the practice of parliament were they ever obliged in capital cases to withdraw till the very commencement of the trial itself if their absence were considered as a privilege which was its real origin it depended on their own choice how far they would insist upon it 
if regarded as a diminution of their right of peerage, such unfavorable customs ought never to be extended beyond the very circumstance established by them, and all arguments, from a pretended parity of reason, were in that case of little or no authority. The House of Lords was so much influenced by these reasons that they admitted the bishop's right to vote when the validity of the pardon should be examined. The Commons insisted still on their withdrawing, and thus a quarrel being commenced between the two houses, the king, who expected nothing but fresh instances of violence from this Parliament, began to entertain thoughts of laying hold of so favorable a pretense, and of finishing the session by a prorogation. While in this disposition, he was alarmed with sudden intelligence that the House of Commons was preparing a remonstrance, in order to inflame the nation still further upon the favorite topics of the plot and of popery. He hastened, therefore, to execute his intention, even without consulting his new counsel, by whose advice he had promised to regulate his whole conduct. And thus were disappointed all the projects of the malcontents, who were extremely enraged at this vigorous measure of the king's. Shaftesbury publicly threatened that he would have the head of whoever had advised it. The Parliament was soon after dissolved without advice of counsel, and writs were issued for a new Parliament. The King was willing to try every means which gave a prospect of more compliance in his subjects, and in case of failure, the blame, he hoped, would lie on those whose obstinacy forced him to extremities. But even during the recess of Parliament, there was no interruption to the prosecution of the Catholics accused of the plot. The king found himself obliged to give way to this popular fury. Whitebread, provincial of the Jesuits, Fenwick, Gavin, Turner, and Harcourt, all of them of the same order, were first brought to their trial. Besides Oates and Bedloe, Dugdale, a new witness, appeared against the prisoners. This man had been steward to Lord Ashton, and, though poor, possessed a character somewhat more reputable than the other two. But his account of the intended massacres and assassinations was equally monstrous and incredible. He even asserted that two hundred thousand papists in England were ready to take arms. The prisoners proved by sixteen witnesses from St. Omer's, students, and most of them young men of family, that Oates was in that seminary at the time when he swore that he was in London. But as they were Catholics and disciples of the Jesuits, their testimony, both with the judges and jury, was totally disregarded. Even the reception which they met with in the court was full of outrage and mockery, one of them saying that Oates always continued at St. Omer's, if he could believe his senses, you papists, said the Chief Justice, are taught not to believe your senses. It must be confessed that Oates, in opposition to the students of St. Omer's, found means to bring evidence of his having been at that time in London. But this evidence, though it had at that time the appearance of some solidity, was afterwards discovered, when Oates himself was tried for perjury, to be altogether deceitful. In order further to discredit that witness, the Jesuits proved, by undoubted testimony, that he had perjured himself in Father Ireland's trial, 
whom they showed to have been in staffordshire at the very time when oates swore that he was committing treason in london but all these pleas availed them nothing against the general prejudices they received sentence of death and were executed persisting to their last breath in the most solemn earnest and deliberate though disregarded protestations of their innocence the next trial was that of langhorne an eminent lawyer by whom all the concerns of the jesuits were managed oates and bedloe swore that all the papal commissions by which the chief offices in england were filled with catholics passed through his hands when verdict was given against the prisoner the spectators expressed their savage joy by loud acclamations so high indeed had the popular rage mounted that the witnesses for this unhappy man on approaching the court were almost torn in pieces by the rabble one in particular was bruised to such a degree as to put his life in danger and another a woman declared that unless the court could afford her protection she durst not give evidence but as the judges could no further than promise to punish such as should do her any injury the prisoner himself had the humanity to waive her testimony so far the informers had proceeded with success their accusation was hitherto equivalent to a sentence of death the first check which they received was on the trial of sir george wakeman the queen's physician whom they accused of an intention to poison the king it was a strong circumstance in favor of wakeman that oates in his first information before the council had accused him only upon hearsay and when asked by the chancellor whether he had anything further to charge him with he added god forbid i should say anything against sir george for i know nothing more against him on the trial he gave positive evidence of the prisoner's guilt there were many other circumstances which favored wakeman but what chiefly contributed to his acquittal was the connection of his cause with that of the queen whom no one even during the highest prejudices of the times could sincerely believe guilty the great importance of the trial made men recollect themselves and recall that good sense and humanity which seemed during some time to have abandoned the nation the chief justice himself who had hitherto favored the witnesses exaggerated the plot and railed against the prisoners was observed to be considerably mollified and to give a favorable charge to the jury oates and bedloe had the assurance to attack him to his face and even to accuse him of partiality before the council the whole party who had formerly much extolled his conduct now made him the object of their resentment wakeman's acquittal was indeed a sensible mortification to the furious prosecutors of the plot and fixed an indelible stain upon the witnesses but wakeman after he recovered his liberty finding himself exposed to such inveterate enmity and being threatened with further prosecutions thought it prudent to retire beyond sea and his flight was interpreted as a proof of guilt by those who were still resolved to persist in the belief of the conspiracy the great discontents in england and the refractory disposition of the parliament drew the attention of the scottish covenanters 
and gave them a prospect of some time putting an end to those oppressions under which they had so long labored it was suspected to have been the policy of lauderdale and his associates to push these unhappy men to extremities and force them into rebellion with a view of reaping profit from the forfeitures and attainders which would ensue upon it but the covenanters aware of this policy had hitherto forborne all acts of hostility and that tyrannical minister had failed of his purpose an incident at last happened which brought on an insurrection in that country the covenanters were much enraged against sharp the primate whom they considered as an apostate from their principles and whom they experienced to be an unrelenting persecutor of all those who dissented from the established worship he had an officer under him one carmichael no less zealous than himself against conventicles and who by his violent prosecutions had rendered himself extremely obnoxious to the fanatics a company of these had waylaid him on the road near st andrews with an intention if not of killing him at least of chastising him so severely as would afterwards render him more cautious in persecuting the nonconformist while looking out for their prey they were surprised at seeing the archbishop's coach pass by and they immediately interpreted this incident as a declaration of the secret purpose of providence against him but when they observed that almost all his servants by some accident were absent they no longer doubted but heaven had here delivered their capital enemy into their hands without further deliberation they fell upon him dragged him from his coach tore him from the arms of his daughter who interposed with cries and tears and piercing him with redoubled wounds left him dead on the spot and immediately dispersed themselves this atrocious action served the ministry as a pretense for a more violent persecution against the fanatics on whom without distinction they threw the guilt of those furious assassins it is indeed certain that the murder of sharp had excited a universal joy among the covenanters and that their blind zeal had often led them in their books and sermons to praise and recommend the assassination of their enemies whom they considered as the enemies of all true piety and godliness the stories of jael and sisera of ehud and eglon resounded from every pulpit the officers quartered in the west received more strict orders to find out and disperse all conventicles and for that reason the covenanters instead of meeting in small bodies were obliged to celebrate their worship in numerous assemblies and to bring arms for their security at rutherglen a small borough near glasgow they openly set forth a declaration against prelacy and in the market-place burned several acts of parliament and acts of council which had established that mode of ecclesiastical government and had prohibited conventicles for this insult on the supreme authority they purposely chose the twenty-ninth of may the anniversary of the restoration and previously extinguished the bonfires which had been kindled for that solemnity captain graham afterwards viscount dundee an active and enterprising officer attacked a great conventicle upon loudon hill and was repulsed with a loss of thirty men 
the covenanters finding that they were unwarily involved in such deep guilt were engaged to persevere and to seek from their valor and fortune alone for that indemnity which the severity of the government left them no hopes of ever being able otherwise to obtain they pushed on to glasgow and though at first repulsed they afterwards made themselves masters of that city dispossessed the established clergy and issued proclamations in which they declared that they fought against the king's supremacy against popery and prelacy and against a popish successor how accidental soever this insurrection might appear there is reason to suspect that some great men in combination with the popular leaders in england had secretly instigated the covenanters to proceed to such extremities and hoped for the same effects that had forty years before ensued from the disorders in scotland the king also apprehensive of like consequences immediately dispatched thither monmouth with a small body of english cavalry that nobleman joined to these troops the scottish guards and some regiments of militia levied from the well-affected counties and with great celerity marched in quest of the rebels they had taken post near bothwell castle between hamilton and glasgow where there was no access to them but over a bridge which a small body was able to defend against the king's forces they showed judgment in the choice of their post but discovered neither judgment nor valor in any other step of their conduct no nobility and few gentry had joined them the clergy were in reality the generals and the whole army never exceeded eight thousand men monmouth attacked the bridge and the body of rebels who defended it maintained their post as long as their ammunition lasted when they sent for more they received orders to quit their ground and to retire backwards this imprudent measure occasioned an immediate defeat to the covenanters monmouth passed the bridge without opposition and drew up his forces opposite to the enemy his cannon alone put them to rout about seven hundred fell in the pursuit for properly speaking there was no action twelve hundred were taken prisoners and were treated by monmouth with a humanity which they had never experienced in their own countrymen such of them as would promise to live peaceably were dismissed about three hundred who were so obstinate as to refuse this easy condition were shipped for barbados but unfortunately perished in the voyage two of their clergy were hanged monmouth was of a generous disposition and besides aimed at popularity in scotland the king intended to entrust the government of that kingdom in his hands he had married a scottish lady heir of a great family and allied to all the chief nobility and lauderdale as he was now declining in his parts and was much decayed in his memory began to lose with the king that influence which he had maintained during so many years notwithstanding the efforts of his numerous enemies both in scotland and england and notwithstanding the many violent and tyrannical actions of which he had been guilty even at present he retained so much influence as to poison all the good intentions which the king either of himself or by monmouth's suggestion had formed with regard to scotland an act of indemnity was granted but lauderdale took care that it should be so worded 
as rather to afford protection to himself and his associates than to the unhappy covenanters and though orders were given to connive thenceforwards at all conventicles he found means under a variety of pretences to elude the execution of them it must be owned however to his praise that he was the chief person who by his counsel occasioned the expeditious march of the forces and the prompt orders given to monmouth and thereby disappointed all the expectations of the english malcontents who reflecting on the disposition of men's minds in both kingdoms had entertained great hopes from the progress of the scottish insurrection end of section twenty six chapter sixty seven part five recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n voice dot com